1: Many of the companies that I've worked with this year want to make their product development and management capability more agile. They sometimes express their current process as being too linear, too rigid, and too heavy, as well as also not providing those shorter time to markets that they really want. We need to get products into the marketplace faster. Most often they're using something that is of a stage gate sort of nature. But being more agile doesn't mean throwing away the stage gate framework. Most of the work that we do in large organizations tends to be done in some kind of a phase or stage gate sort of fashion. But it does mean adopting agile philosophies and processes. And this is what our guest Mike Cohn has been doing for more than 20 years, building high-performing software development teams and organizations through the use of Agile and Scrum. He's worked with startups all the way up to some of the largest organizations in the world. He has really valuable experience to share with us. That's why I asked him to be here. So if you hear anything that you want to go back to later, or maybe you hear something that you want to share with your team, share with a colleague, you'll find the summary of that information at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 224. Everything there that we've talked about will be summarized along with useful links. Check that out. Now, let's talk to Mike. Mike, thanks so much for joining the Everyday Innovators. Thanks Chad for having me. Glad we could talk. You are an agile development expert. You've had a long background in programming too, but you now you help a lot of companies move towards agile practices and uh, work with uh, different agile development processes. How did you get involved with that? Tell us just about that background a little bit.
0: Well, you mentioned that I was a programmer and I was for quite a while and I needed to start managing the projects as I was getting promoted up an organization. Hmm. And um, I'd like to give a nice story about how I was really trying to figure out the right thing for the business. But the real truth is I wanted something that would still leave me time for programming while managing. And that led me to uh, Scrum back in uh, 1995. It was a bit of a process that would be lightweight enough Uh and still allow me time to time to code and uh, just worked phenomenally well. So I kind of stuck with it and kept doing more with that.
1: Yeah, so you had good personal success with it, and that leads to helping others with it, too. Absolutely. Great. So you've worked with lots of organizations. We'll just kind of frame this around Scrum, and sometimes people use the terms interchangeably. I get that, right? Agile and Scrum. Yeah, they do. Agile is actually, or agile, depending what part of the U.S. you're from, <laughs> is actually a larger kind of body of knowledge. Scrum is a specific implementation. Existing organizations, they typically have some kind of governance model in place. I see StageGate being used an awful lot as a popular one. Well, really to kind of reduce risk in the the project uh, in the organization, what are the reasons that they give for wanting to incorporate Scrum when you're helping organizations? Maybe what are they coming from, and what are they wanting to move towards?
0: Well, most organizations seem to be coming from just a purely ad hoc development approach. They may have uh, mm. you know some very minimal project management or something where they think they have some sort of process defined, but. Most are pretty much nothing. They're not coming from a very heavyweight process to Scrum. They're often just coming from kind of nothing to Scrum, or uh, you run it your way, I'll run it my way. And so there's nothing across the organization. And so we can get a little bit more um, repeatable results with something, and that'll bring organizations to Scrum. Definitely, there are some that are using much heavier weight processes. You know, we always seem to have like a pendulum. We go from too light to too heavy, back Mm -hmm. to too light, back to too heavy. And, uh, you know, I think organizations got too heavy over the last 10 or 20 years. And they're moving to lighten some of that up as the uh, business cycle speeds up. They just have to be faster these days.
1: Right. Everyone is wanting to push the product to market faster. And those life cycles are getting shorter and more compressed. And yeah, I think we're, we're all feeling that need to speed up a bit. Continually. Yep. A lot of pressure there. And I also know organizations who have tried to put in something like StageGate. I just I keep referring to that one because it's the one I run into most often. From my my product space, right? And whether we're doing software or physical products, it seems to be rather prevalent in large organizations. And certainly a good risk management sort of approach. For organizations that are facing that pressure of wanting to speed up time to market, uh, get products developed more quickly, what are the challenges that you've been running into with organizations adopting Scrum?
0: Oh, wow. That I mean, that runs the gamut. I mean, so first off, you know, every organization that is going to Scrum or maybe not every, but nearly every is trying to get faster. So it's pretty much everybody I run into. And uh, some of the issues they'll run into would be that uh, they think Scrum is just something those developers do and uh, nobody else has to be affected by it. And that's, hmm. that's a huge misnomer. Uh, we don't need the facilities group doing Scrum, for example, but facilities would have to stop doing things that are antagonistic to scrum and uh, that, you know, that could involve having people on separate floors and things like that. Plenty of good reasons to be in, you know, here in uh, Colorado where you and I are and half the team in China, plenty of reasons for that. No good reasons to be half on the second floor, half on the fifth floor. Hmm. And, uh, you know, so you got to get facilities to understand things like that. Sales can't make promises without talking to developers. That becomes more of an issue in an agile environment. And so a lot of it's those type of issues. Um, Most people transition fairly well to Scrum or any agile process. There's a a small percentage that uh, just are not going to thrive in that type of environment. And sometimes we end up with uh, human resources issues, people that just are not a good fit in an organization anymore. Mm -hmm. That's not because of Scrum. It's because of how they like to work. So uh, you'll run into uh, things like that. Um, A lot of issues with management misunderstanding Scrum. Talking to uh, a, a group recently, where management interpreted agile to be we can change our minds whenever we want, and they cope with it.
1: It is software, after all, right? It's easy to change. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you know
0: the team. You know the team is expected to cope with change, but management has to understand that there's a cost to change, and all we can do with agile is reduce the cost to change. We can't eliminate the cost to change, right? Somebody comes up to you at the last minute and wants it changed, There's a cost, right? We can reduce it, but we cannot eliminate it. So problems like that, pretty common.
1: Yeah. Impacting the larger organization. I want to ask you more about that. This is probably the thing I see most often yeah. is it seems to be easier for organizations to bring in agile into the development group. And then once they do that, they start kind of bumping in against the rest of the organization. But like the common one that I see coming up is we still want the roadmap. We still want to know when is that product going to release so that we can get marketing queued up so we can get aligned with sales and organizations, be, they express a bit of uncomfortableness when we can't say certain things are going to happen. Uh, even though the reality may have been before this, that whenever we said something was going to happen, like Q3, this is going to be the case, and we, we always missed it, right? Right. Give us some insights in dealing with that. How, how do you help align the expectations, especially uh, senior management, that are used to more of this plan-driven, time-driven approach?
0: I think part of it is what you just described. Is that you know, in a in a pre agile world, a traditionally managed world, teams would still they would make plans and promises, and everybody knew they were false, but people would go off and kind of believe it. And some people feel better with that. It's like, oh, I've got a plan. I know it's wrong, but I have one.
1: Uh-huh.
0: And in agile, we don't want to go to a world where we don't necessarily plan at all. We want to have some sort of uh, vision on things and know where we're headed. And it's quite possible for agile teams to make commitments and say something like, here's what we will deliver in six months. The challenge is making that type of a commitment with uh, a lot of precision. And so I can't narrow it down and say, here are the 1,000 tiny features that will be in here in six months. But I can certainly make a commitment to a business of like, look, these are the 100 areas in which we're going to make improvements. Some will have everything you want. Some may not have everything. But here's the general framework for what we're going to deliver in six months. That's very possible in an Agile world. And uh, it just wasn't possible in any world to narrow that down to specifics. And that's been the big problem. And Agile teams have really pushed back on that, and for good reason, that uh, planning accurately is not that hard, but planning with precision is impossible.
1: Yeah. The big shift for me, and I was involved in Agile development back in the early 90s before the manifesto was a thing, right? It's interesting, just I'm sure you've had this experience too. When you go back and talk to some of the very early programmers, right, like nineteen late, late 50s that were on some of the big aerospace projects, they were still doing things in a very iterative manner. So it's a lot of things that we're talking about. They have been around for a long time. It's not necessarily widely adopted practices for a while, right?
0: Oh, absolutely. Um, Craig Warman has written a paper where he went back and studied a lot of early projects and said, you know, iterative has been around forever. And yep. You know, the, the waterfall process really got to find in 1970 in Winston Royce's paper right. on that. And, um, you know, even, even he said, you know, you can't really do this. He said, you know, you got to iterate back and forth through these cycles, right? So but
1: that is the most amazing paper. And I don't know how that got left out because it, it is just <laughs> well, the last paragraph. It's, it's like a seven page paper, right? Yeah. The last paragraph, he says, and if we do this waterfall process, our projects will cost twice as much and take twice as long.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, people. I think people. I think people were excited. You know, I think they saw ah, here's a model for software development. I'll go do it, and they didn't finish reading the paper. Right? right? They, just, they just got started. I always tell people that are in favor of that type of a process to go. You know, buy the absolute best selling book on waterfall on Amazon. Um, there isn't a book on waterfall on Amazon, right? No credible software engineer says do all the analysis, all this 100. There's always some sort of uh, feedback loops, at least between the phases, if not full-on right. iteration, right? Yep. And, uh, you know, and that's true even in, you know, no matter how staged your process is, we might have stage-gate things, but, you know, we don't lock it down uh, and refuse any change whatsoever.
1: Yeah. What I've been seeing organizations do with stage-gate is, and just so everyone's kind of on the same page just listening, uh, everyday innovators, you know, we might have a scoping stage as kind of the traditional place to start. And once once ideas have been selected for a product, we move them into a scoping stage, and we get our hands around what that really means. And at some point, that's going to end up in creating a business case to decide are we going to move forward into, into develop or not. And I know organizations m- might have a, that phase as 60 to 90 days. Sometimes projects get stuck there and they, and they don't get moved on. Yeah. And even just breaking that up into smaller chunks and say, well, what could we figure out in the next three, four weeks? And then what could we do in another three or four weeks? That kind of approach to making things more agile seems to be really helpful, thinking about not all what we might get done, like we might have done in a traditional planned approach with Waterfall, instead of a six-month project to deliver the big thing, we're learning all the way along, and we're adapting as we go. Right.
0: I think there's plenty of room to debate whether agile is a great thing or whether agile is a fit for a particular company. I mean, obviously, I think it is, and I think it's a fit for you know the vast majority of projects, mm-hmm. but there's I'm open. I mean, there's plenty of room to debate whether Agile is a good thing. I don't think there's a lot of room to debate whether some level of iterations are a good thing, right? So Mm -hmm. if you don't like Agile, you know, don't do two-week iterations like I may prefer. Go do three-month iterations, right? Um, But, you know, don't go do a two-year iteration, right? So, uh, you know, be realistic with it. And uh, I don't think there's a lot of room to debate that at least some level of iterating over the product is appropriate.
1: Mike is sharing some really good information with us, and we'll get back to it in just a minute. But I want to share something else that is also really valuable. It's a system that I've created called the RPM Experience. That stands for the Rapid Product Mastery Experience. This podcast and the work that I do is to help product managers and leaders become product masters. And the Rapid Product Mastery Experience, or the RPM Experience, is to help teams, product teams, or groups of product managers, to really perform at a higher level, to take what you already do well, And to do it even better and work better together, collaborate better together, communicate while at the same time building a really valuable foundation of knowledge. It helps everyone stay on the same page. It helps you have a common set of language for how you talk about projects, how you talk with each other. And teams are really getting amazing results with this. It's also really easy to adopt. There's no travel involved. It's a virtual experience. What happens is each week, everyone on the team, and this is ideal for groups from about five people to no more than 14, So we have five to 14 product professionals in a group. Individually, each person during the week goes through an online training, and then we meet once a week for 75 minutes as a virtual team. We hop on Zoom, and we talk about how the concepts that we learned individually apply to the work that we are doing, the work that you're doing in the organization. And it has really been an amazing experience, and that's why it's called the RPM experience. An amazing experience for those who have participated one leader at an organization said, after going through the RPM experience with his team, that this was the only training that provides an integrated product management perspective. It did exactly what I needed it to. He saw real results with his team. Now, I'm really happy that teams are adopting this and using it. If you're at all interested, I want you to go to theeverydayinnovator.com RPM. I really need to find out what your needs are, see if this is a good fit for you. That will let you sign up on my calendar. We'll spend a few minutes talking about your objectives for improving the performance of your product team or your product management group, and if this fits in and is a good solution or not. I'm interested in only working with people that where this really does help them, so we'll make sure it's a good fit first. So again, that's TheEverydayInnovator.com slash RPM. Now, let's talk some more to Mike. So some things that stay the same, we talked about, you know, we're still doing planning. It's not like planning has been thrown out the window. Correct. Uh, We're still making a level of commitments to the organization so we we can help keep everyone on the same page. Obviously, there's some things that change. Why don't we focus on that for a bit?
0: I think part of what changes is uh, teams have to be empowered and and not just in in a lip service manner. Agile teams are often referred to as being self-organizing, which um, doesn't mean out of control, doesn't necessarily mean self-managing or self-governing. They're, they're self-organizing, meaning they're given a problem and plenty of uh, maneuvering room to figure out what is success. Mm-hmm. And um, that makes a lot of organizations uncomfortable. So you're back to kind of what changes. It's uh, you know giving teams uh, a target. Here's what I need. And then allowing the team the freedom to make that happen. One of the very first Scrum projects, this is back in the early 90s in uh, in Japan, was a, a project to make a new photocopier. And the mm-hmm. team was given the challenge, uh, make a photocopier that runs at today's state of the art. You have two and a half years. It has to uh, cost half the price of today's state of the art. And the story is basically that the team looked at that and you know probably said something like, whoa, man, impossible. How can we do this? Why am I on this project? And then they started to own it. They started to say, well, what if we did this? And what if we did this? And. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, but that won't work because this. And at that point, whoever gave them that challenge had won because the team took ownership of the right. problem. And if that problem could be solved, that team would now solve the problem. Now, if we over-constrained that team, if if you know, if I'm the, the guy giving them that assignment and I say, build it two and a half years, half half the price, state of the art, and you have to use my brother's toner cartridges, right? Uh, never would have worked, right? Mm-hmm. You over-constrained it and the team can't, uh, doesn't have the maneuvering room or the degrees of freedom to succeed. Mm-hmm. So a big part of it is giving that freedom to the team. You know, you, the, uh, What we call a product owner or kind of a key stakeholder can say what success is, and then, but then we have to leave that up to the team to figure out how to, how to get to
1: success. And that is really empowering for a team. As product people, we love those kind of challenges to dive in and figure out what is a solution to deliver that value.
0: Yeah, you're right. It is empowering. Uh, it, it feels good for teams to be empowered, right? They take more ownership of the problem. But this is a little bit back to what I was commenting on earlier, where not everybody successfully transitions to agile. Hmm. There are some of us who just don't like that. They want to be told exactly what to do, and they don't want the problem definition left vague, right? They want to be told code exactly this, design is exactly this way. Mm-hmm. I don't know, it's five or ten percent of us, but not everybody. Not everybody likes that. Uh, that freedom.
1: Right. We're used just to a different environment and and more direction. Yeah. Some people. Definitely. Another aspect of that is, well, from my experience too, and when you read Scrum literature, there's a big emphasis put on a skilled, intact team. This is a team that knows how to work well together. And that just takes time to build too. Right. Thoughts on that?
0: one of the early criticisms when agile first really got going was that it was described as being a good process only if you had really good people. And I'm, I'm always reminded of something from Barry Beam's software engineering economics book, which is pretty much about as waterfall a book as you can get. He has in there something called the principle of top talent, which he says uh, the principle of top talent says, try to do more with fewer people. Um, Uh You know, what process doesn't work better with top talent, right? right? So, um, you know, that's a little bit of a kind of a red herring argument about Scrum or, or Agile in general. It's like, oh, you, you need really good people or something. Uh, the better a team you're going to have, uh, the better we're going to be. I think the, where Scrum and Agile uh, are different in that is because of the short iterative cycles, it points out if you have uh, a, a weak team or a weak link on your team. Those problems become more apparent more quickly and a lot of early people looked at that and said, oh, here's why Scrum is a problem. Mm-hmm. It's like, that's nah, actually a good thing. If I've got a weak link on my team, I want to know that early so we can try to you know, educate the person or work around it somehow, right. get them some skills. Right. Absolutely. The earlier we know that, the better.
1: Good. Let's talk briefly about the product owner position specifically. Th- this is the one that seems to come up most often in the sort of product work that I do. My work is focused on product managers and how can we power product managers to perform higher and their teams perform higher. The product managers are ideally being connected externally. They're the ones that are talking to the customer and and focus on the customer. Not true for all product managers, but that's what we like to see. And the product owners tend to be uh, internally focused and responsible for requirements and user stories, really what what needs to get built. And in some organizations, some projects, that's the same person. And sometimes it's, it's two separate people that hopefully interact really well. What are you seeing makes a good product owner versus that kind of product manager role I defined or, or keep it together? Just what are your thoughts on that?
0: Well, we'd really like to have it be one person. I mean, and I don't care if we call them product owner or product manager, but they're the, they're the person. And they should be both external and internally focused. So that's, that's, the, that's the goal. That's often a very difficult uh, uh, position for somebody to be able to do both of those right. very well. Um, I mean, they might have the right skill sets to be both internal and externally focused, but probably not the time. It's very tough. And so I think the Scrum ideal solution on that would be that a product owner would have more of a business analyst or system analyst help them out. And that one person would retain the overall authority for the product. But we do see a lot of organizations that split a little bit differently and they'll have a, a product manager, exactly as you said, externally focused and the product owner internally focused. And it is a bit of a challenge. We've got to make sure that they have a really good working relationship mm-hmm. between the two. And one isn't trying to uh, basically, you know, usurp the other's authority, and uh, makes it a makes it a significant challenge. I think the skills that are a little bit different in a more on the internal side, more than the external side. So, more product owner than manager. Normally, that person's a little bit more analytical and a little bit more organized than the you know. If you if you had two, and what I'm just kind of thinking about, if you had two, and you had to switch, which is which. Uh-huh. The, uh, the product manager, the more outward-facing, a little bit more the person who thrives in the conversation, perhaps a little bit more extroverted, and they thrive with the conversation and the really big picture, uh, here's what I want, uh, and then the product owner, a little bit more analytical. It's like, uh, yeah, okay, that's what you want, but it won't work because of this, and uh, they're going to figure some of those things out and uh, be the one that k- kind of keeps things organized with the team. Now, Scrum Master is going to go even be more organized and go way beyond that even, but mm-hmm. that'd be a distinction I'd see with product owner and manager.
1: Good. I agree that if it can be the same person, that's ideal. Yeah. Otherwise, you really need two people that are joined at the hip and have high trust for each other and really help each other accomplish this mission of developing a new product or an improved product that customers love. And that takes them working working really well together.
0: It does. It's a little bit like a a, a, a couple's relationship right? and the, the team is the kid. Yeah. And the team will learn very quickly that, you know, if mom said no, it's go ask dad. Right. right? <laughs> And so, you know, just like parents, they better have a shared message. And so the product owner and product manager better, they better be spending a lot of time with, with one another to mm-hmm. have that shared message for a team.
1: I love that analogy. You know, anyone that has kids, we know that. It's like, well, mom, did yeah. it give me the answer I wanted? Let's see if I get a different answer from dad.
0: Um, my my daughters learned very early on if they wanted to go shopping, I was not the one to ask. But if they wanted- <laughs> If they wanted ice cream, I was the one to to ask, right? I'd say yes to that, but I did not want to go to the mall and just wander around. Ask the right person first. Yep. Six-year-old figures that out. Teams figure that out.
1: So. <laughs> yep. I've learned as dad to always first preface my answer to a question now is, well, have you asked mom already? <laughs> yep. Because <laughs> <laughs> if you have, that determines what we're going to say. Yeah. Very good. Great great analogy. Other things that come up with organizations that they might be surprised about moving towards a scrum scrum environment, something that they weren't expecting.
0: The only other one I'd really add would be that a lot of times people think they're going to move to, uh, to Scrum and that it's going to fix their problems in a development organization. And it really doesn't. Scrum doesn't fix the problems. It might fix a few. But what Scrum's really going to do is help expose the problems in the organization. It's not necessarily going to fix them on its own. And so sometimes, you know, we look at that and it's like, oh, you know, before we did this process, we didn't have all these problems. It's mm-hmm. like, no, you did have all these problems. You weren't necessarily aware of them. Right. And so, uh, you know, be prepared for some some roughness there where when you first transition, you know, you, you're in this this period where it's just like problem after problem arising. And it's a good thing, but you're going to get past those problems. If you work at it, you'll get past those problems. And then life on the other side can get really good. I just remember coming home, you know, my wife asking, like, you know, how was your day-to-day? And, you know, there's days where it was just phenomenal. Mm -hmm. at uh, i remember one company where our our product had won a product of the year award that day and another team had done something amazing and you know and all this was because of how we worked through a lot of issues i gotta say it was because of scrum but scrum was what led us to fight through various issues and then we got very good and Mm -hmm. that feels good but it's going to feel tough at times when you're first starting and a lot of organizations go in thinking you know how we start doing these daily stand-ups and all of a sudden we're twice as fast
1: it does not happen overnight, and you're exactly right. And that's not, not just Scrum. Anytime we bring in a process that we actually try to follow the process, yeah. it's going to expose where our faults and problems have been, and now the challenge is to correct those issues. Yep, absolutely. Really good. Have you been involved in a systems project where we have hardware and software integration? Yeah, definitely. Okay. Well, just how do you manage through that the, that integration aspect? Because now we have the manufacturing side that's responsible for our hardware build, and we have to interface with them, and we have the software team that's creating the software for that system. That interface can be really challenging, and managing the timelines can be challenging.
0: Yeah, normally the, one of the biggest things is just um, having uh, a little bit more Uh, forward planning on things so we know when uh we're going to have a new drop of hardware and things like that having the uh the two groups coordinate their schedule to do that they'll often do what's called rolling rolling look ahead planning where they're looking ahead a little bit more than uh we might hear about in a traditional scrum context where the team is just going iteration to iteration and you know they show up every two weeks and decide what are we going to build now Uh it's like no some of what we're going to build might be uh might be led by what the hardware team needs or what we're trying to get done before the hardware team is, is ready for the next version of hardware. And so a little bit more foresight is uh, often a big part of it.
1: Yeah. There's a real challenge when those two groups are not very well integrated and when manufacturing is moving off kind of on their own process and timeline and not integrated with what's going on with the software team.
0: A lot of times that comes when there's a, an imbalance of power. And I always hate kind of thinking about it that way. But you know, if you're a if you're a company that was started by a hardware founder and hardware is viewed as the thing, mm-hmm. and software is just a necessary evil, well, the hardware group is going to be dominant, and they're going to uh, you know push the software group around. Same thing if you're more of a software company and you start doing a little bit of hardware, uh, software group is probably going to be dominant and push the other group around. And we always want to have some sort of kind of balance there. It's, neither one's more important. They're you know if we're doing a product with both in it, they're both important. And uh, sometimes company culture gives a little too much authority or power to one of the two groups.
1: Yeah, culture is a big issue, especially if we have manufacturing in a foreign country. Yeah. Working together, keeping on the same page. Anyone in that boat, you know that can be a challenge. (laughs) Excellent. So for an organization that is starting, maybe we are in that stage gate sort of environment. We have something that is more plan driven that wants to look into moving towards adopting scrum. What are your tips for doing that? Do we, you know, start out and select a single project and say we're going to focus our energy, energies around that? Or we train everyone first, or what do we do?
0: I definitely like starting with one project rather than you know taking a, a whole company because uh, you know in, in the current period it's like we know agile works at this point. What we mm-hmm. don't know in any one company is does it work for us, and what does successful agile look like for us? And so that's what an organization needs to to figure out, not just, you know, hypothetically, does it work in the world? There's plenty of examples where it does work in the world. But what does it look like in our company? And so I like to start with with one project. I definitely recommend starting with some sort of important project. You don't want to start with something that's unimportant. It's like, oh, if it works, great. If not, no big deal. Because then what happens is nobody does the hard work of making the changes. So you have to do something uh, that's a little bit perhaps aimed at failure, right? If we don't do something, this current project is going to fail. That gives people a lot of motivation to try something different. And so those are those are my favorites. Kent Beck is the uh, inventor of the extreme programming process. Uh-huh. And he had a, a really interesting analogy years ago. He said, there's only really kind of three ways to get started. And he used the analogy of getting into a pool. And he said, there's the toe dippers, right? And that's, you know, after maybe starting with like your, you know, your two person pilot project. Um, then he said, there's the cannonballers and you know, they're just, you know, all in, right. Let's just jump in. And then the racing start, right. Which is a little bit more strategic and planned. And so I love that as a metaphor for, for how we get started. So, and I'd probably be a little bit more in the, uh, the racing start. I wouldn't do a, a cannonball, but I'd go at it pretty aggressively, but, uh, in a deliberate manner with one project.
1: I might be in trouble. I'm definitely the cannonball person when it comes to getting into a pool. <laughs> I, I am with a pool.'m
0: not, not necessarily I'm not necessarily with agile. I've had a couple of clients cannonball it and be successful, but uh, it always scares me uh, when, uh, when somebody does that. So
1: it is a challenge to try to change an entire organization at once and uh, if the racing start is looking at a project that matters, one that we don't want to fail, so it's going to get some energy around it. That, that, that's a good start. Yeah. I just like getting that cold change, getting into the pool over as quickly as possible. <laughs> I'm with you. <laughs> Other ideas about moving into Scrum or maybe problems that you know that come up that we should be prepared for?
0: Uh, I don't know I have any others you know, that we've talked about. We I mean, can go on and on with problems, but a lot of the problems are personality-related and expectation-related Um, And those are just gonna be very different, uh, different per company. Uh So but, um, you know, Tom DeMarco has a great quote years ago, I I never remember the exact quote, but it's something along the lines of like, it's rarely the technology, right? We're never starting a project wondering, has the technology advanced enough that we can do this project? If the project fails, it's almost always a people issue. And so um, you know, it's not a process issue or a technology issue, it's people. And so that's often where I'm looking at it. And I don't have a lot of companies these days hire me to say, you know, can we do agile? But 15 years ago that was a pretty common question. People would have me come in and do an assessment and I'd look at the technology, I'd look at the uh, the project that's specifically being built, and I'd look at the people. And after a while I realized I was kind of wasting my clients' money because I never said no because of the technology or the project. Hmm. The only reason I ever said no was people. And hmm. so I started only looking at the people, right? And, uh, you know, do we have an audience that's willing to give something new a try? Or are they uh, preconceived to think it's awesome or preconceived to think it's going to fail and then probably not really a good position to be in? I want, mm-hmm. I want people, I don't need to do a, like, double-blind clinical trial. Uh, you know, we can go in going, I hope this works, but uh, I, I want to go in with an attitude of trying to learn from right, doing it.
1: Yeah, this is still a change management process. We are asking people to change their behavior, to do things that they haven't done before. And so we have to be conscious of what that means to change a group and change behavior. Yeah. And speaking of quotes, I always love a good quote. I always ask my guests for an innovation quote. Uh, What do you have for us?
0: I'll paraphrase. I don't always remember the exact words of it. But one of my favorites is from uh, Bob Dylan, who said... uh, if you get up in the morning and you do what you want all day, by the end of the day, you're a success, right? So it's about getting up and being able to do what you want. Spend your life on the on the things you want to do, and that to me has always been kind of the goal, right? Uh, there's gonna be days where you do stuff you don't want to do, uh, um, you know, as part of like your overall plan. But uh, you know, hopefully, when you wake up in the morning, you're doing something that you like to do. Um, mm-hmm. That to me is kind of the definition of success.
1: Yeah, I talk to teams a lot about that in terms of. Are you excited when you get out of bed to go to work or not? Right. Yeah. And if we're product people, a lot of that has to do with, are we contributing to a product we actually care about and we're excited about, right? Is it actually helping people? If it's not, yeah, then it's kind of, oh, home. Yeah. And are we getting to work with people that we are wanting to work with? Right. Yeah.
0: It's, it's huge. And that was, um, uh, I started my own business years ago and I literally started the day after my boss came in, the boss was just nuts. I mean, just, she's, she was insane. And, uh, I was in a meeting with, was she asking
1: for your TPS report?
0: (laughs) It was pretty darn close. (laughs) I mean, she was, this wasn't, this wasn't the actual meeting, but I mean, a couple months earlier she'd walked in and said, I have five VPs. I need one of you to stay late every night, just so the team sees you. You don't need to do anything. Just stay till seven o'clock. So the team sees you and walk around, like be visible. And, um, nuts right it's like that I've never been after people's hours I want their passion I want right. I want people leaving at five o'clock with their brains dripping in sweat but I don't want them there till seven or eight o'clock at night and so she would just do things like that she came in one day and I don't remember what the specific was but she just said something crazy and I looked to one of the other VPs and we both agreed we're, we're, we're too old to work with people we don't like or respect mm-hmm. and uh, I quit the next day he quit a week later <laughs> just like enough's enough right and that was that Yeah. And, you know, if you're not going into work and doing what you want to do, it's like, you know, find a way to change it. And uh, you're right. Often it's the product. Are we are we doing something that we can see the impact on the world? It doesn't have to be life changing, but uh, are we doing something where we see that there's some good in the world happening about whatever it is that we're doing?
1: Yeah. 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 And I think there there often is. uh, I've talked to too many organizations. This has been a recurring theme for me lately, that there's some expression about, you know, we're working on this boring thing. And they've lost touch with actually how it is changing people, what a difference it makes to them. It could be the thing that you're actually doing itself is kind of boring, but the benefits to the users are enormous. Yeah. And and, and we got to get reconnected with how it's how it's impacting our users, our customers.
0: Yeah. A couple minutes ago, uh, you know, while we're doing this, I had a little thing pop up on my Mac saying, you know, you need to upgrade your little screen capture utility. Um, my little screen capture utility does not change my life, but um, I really appreciate the developers who worked on the thing, right? Right. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's not something that's completely innovated in the industry, renovated in the industry, but it makes my life a whole lot nicer. Mm-hmm. And uh, for, I don't know, $5 or whatever I spent on it when I first bought the thing, I like it. And uh, I don't have to go in the, in the, into the office and change the world, but I got to go in knowing what I'm doing is useful to people. Right. Otherwise, I don't want to do it.
1: That's a really good point. And pursue the Bob Dylan life. Oh, and by the way, for those who do not know, the the TPS reference is in the movie Office Space, classic IT software development movie, if you should check it out. Okay, thanks for sharing that quote. Really appreciate that. If people want to find out more about the work you're doing, you also have a number of different training options available for individuals or organizations wanting to learn more about Scrum. How can they find out about those resources?
0: Yeah, thanks. Our whole thing is about uh, just helping people succeed with agile in, in whatever way they need. We do in-person training, we do video training, and uh, uh, just uh, hundreds of articles and uh, videos on our on our blog for free. Uh, so just go to mountaingoatsoftware.com uh, is where kind of the hub for everything
1: that I do. Great. Mountaingoatsoftware.com, that's easy to find. I'll put the link in the show notes for this too. Great. And I'm sure there's others besides me curious. Where did the name come from, Mountain Goat?
0: it was interesting because we started out talking about iterating, and uh, we started the, uh, the company after having read a book by Tom Gilb, um, G-I-L-B is his name, and I considered him the first agilist. He would written a book called The Principles of Software Engineering Management back in 1989, and each page is a different principle, and one of the principles in there is the Mountain Goat Principle, which says something like, make sure each hoof is firmly planted as you climb step-by-step step up the rocky hillside. And so firmly planted, but well tested. And that's what we were doing. We were testing like crazy back then, uh, step-by-step step up the Rocky mountain meant iterations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, back then in 89, when Tom wrote this, he was saying everybody needs to do like 50 iterations on your project. And he was talking about largely kind of year long projects back then, but he was telling people to do week or two week iterations. Mm-hmm. And, uh, to me that was, I mean, that was fundamental in changing how I viewed development when I read that, uh, back then. And, uh, why consider it the first Agile book? So when we went to name the company, we knew that's how we wanted to work or how we were already working as we started the company. So we named it after that principle and really kind of fit in well with the uh, the Agile idea, which came along about 10 years later.
1: Yep. Excellent. I, I like it. And easier to remember now, too. Mountain Goat Software. <laughs> Yeah, it's nice when there's a story
0: instead of like, you know, I tried every other URL that was out there, right? So, you know, we, yeah, we had a
1: reason for it. Excellent. Mike, I appreciate your time, your insights and experience that you have shared with us for the last few minutes. And thanks for letting people know how they can find more resources at mountaingoatsoftware.com.
0: Thanks, Chad. I appreciate it.
1: Thanks again for listening to The Everyday Innovator. This is where product leaders and managers make their move to product master learning practical knowledge that leads to more influence and confidence so you'll create products customers love. Mike shared some really valuable information with us. You'll find the summary of that discussion at theeverydayinnovator.com slash 224. It's a great resource to share with colleagues, share with your team. And as I always say, keep innovating. Thank you for listening
0: to The Everyday Innovator, which teaches product managers to become product masters. For more resources, please visit the everydayinnovator.com.